0: Spreading freedom across the nation. This is Three, two, one. the Buck
1: Sexton Show.
2: Woo Team Buck. So good to be back. First show 2017. Oh gosh, I love the Freedom Hut. I've missed all of you very, very much. I've had a chance to speak with some of you either via social media as per usual or during a couple of fill-ins for Rush Limbaugh while I am on the subject. I'll be in for uh, Mr. Rush himself tomorrow, 12 to 3, across the country. And I believe the one and only Michael Pelka, Stunt Brain, will be in for me on the Blaze Radio Network. But, yeah, I'm on the EIB, 12 to 3, Eastern, tomorrow, which is exciting stuff. Uh, as always, i are going to have a lot to talk about, especially in light of a very busy day down in D.C. on Capitol Hill, which we'll get into in just a minute here. But uh, I trust all of you had a a good holiday, a good Christmas Uh, I turned 35 on the 28th of December, uh, which was uh, a thing that happened to me. It's interesting to be 35 now, five years from 40. Okay, Um, now it's now it's go time. If I'm going to really make a mark in media, I feel like the time is now. So thank you all for being a part of all that. And. Uh, best thing of my year as always uh, in what I do and and in my day to day is team bucks so thank you for being a part of all that and uh, it was very nice down with miss molly in florida had a lovely time i will say that uh, we stayed really on the on the boundary between uh, palm beach and lake worth uh so right on the boundary i mean when the palm beach sort of private beach turns into the lake lake worth public beach i was like right there uh, and, and it was it was quite nice. A uh, little, little crowded. Uh, I do not usually travel over the holidays in any sort of long distance sense. So anyway, that was that. And uh, New Year's was fun. And that's those are my updates. Other than that, if you want, I, I'm on Instagram. You can check out some of the photos I posted on Instagram if you didn't see them on Facebook. I'm just Buck Sexton on Instagram. So those of you who are Instagram peeps can follow me there. Uh, And obviously on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. All right, let's get into some news. Just all excited, all excited. excited. I missed all of you. I get a little, you know, twitchy. I get a little little anxious when I haven't had a chance to sit down with the team for a few days uh, or many days in this case. So uh, we've got the possible repeal of Obamacare on the uh, docket today for Congress. I I watched this morning. As Nancy Pelosi whom I have to say it's astonishing to me that she has the ability to get up there and say things now that I guess we knew back then she would eventually have to say but wasn't there some foresight among Democrats that if that if they lost power the complete lack of any bipartisan appeal whatsoever when it came to passing Obamacare. I mean, the way they did it, they they jammed through the last bits of it through the budget reconciliation process. Not a single Republican vote for this bill. And now they're doing two things simultaneously while the sort of country watches to see what this new Congress is up to, this Republican-controlled Congress with a soon-to-be Republican president. And they are both uh, pretending to reach across the aisle and also lying about what Obamacare has really been and, and what it's accomplished or what it has done. On the one hand, let's start with the reaching across the aisle stuff, if you don't mind. I'll, I'll sort of start us there. I um, mean, I can tell you the following. Um, they're not serious about anything. When, when we're talking about this as whether it's a bipartisan uh, bipartisan effort or not, they can't speak about Obamacare without simultaneously slandering the Republicans in some way. Uh, they will. The, the, the tagline is make America sick again. So let's not get let, let's not even get to sort of first base here. Let's not even pretend that there's any real effort to do anything bipartisan when it comes to Obamacare, at least not yet. Maybe the Democrats will be forced to bend the knee on this. I'm assuming Trump will want that uh, a sort of show of humility from the Democrats and will they be willing to make that step I think probably not their entire mantra is going to be just all out constant Trump opposition but maybe with Paul Ryan led Republican majority Congress they're willing to do something there there's a chance there will work with them on some of that but with Trump no I don't think they're going to allow Trump to bring them into the office and say you fired I don't see that happening but might be, uh, there might be a back and forth on that coming up. We'll have to see. But so they're on the one hand saying "make America sick again," which is uh, disrespectful. I think very clearly disrespectful to the administration. And I mean, look, they can say whatever they want. But the point I'm making here is just they're not really serious about this being some bipartisan, uh, bipartisan moment in time. Uh, what they're going to do is is hope that they can either get Trump to back off enough or I shouldn't say Trump hope that the Republicans in Congress uh, to back off enough that they can say that they sold out the they sold out their base once again to try to cause dissent inside the GOP ranks and then take credit for any anything that the GOP does that maintains parts of this Democrats are going to say see we told you Obamacare is good now there are two things in Obamacare as we know uh, we've talked about this now four years. Um, there are two aspects of Obamacare that I think are both politically, uh, politically potent. And I would even argue in the one case, there's a there is a, a real moral case you made for it. And of course, that's the elimination of pre existing conditions and kids being able to stay. And you're not a kid. You're not a kid once you're past 18. And. So this is, you know, young adults, I guess we'll say Um, you're you're allowed to stay on your parents health insurance till you're 26. That's politically popular. I don't know if that's really if there's really a moral argument you made for that, but it's politically popular. And then you have, of course, the pre-existing conditions. And, And that's where I think the Democrats got ahead of the Republicans. And they and they did outmaneuver them because the idea that somebody through no fault of their own could have some. Uh, terrible illness befall them, and then be essentially priced out of the healthcare market for the rest of their lives, and just go through constant either substandard care and bouts of uh, of, of being bankrupt, if not officially, well then incapable of of paying bills. So that's uh, that's where I think the Democrats are going to go on all this. They're going to say, well, if Republicans keep it, it's really just proving to us. Once again, that we were right all along. Um, but there's a big fight coming over this, and and I should just point out, you're here. You're going to hear a lot of stuff about this, like Obamacare insures 20 million people, and like so much of the Obama legacy and the Obama economy and and his record on health care, this is wildly misleading. This number, um, the that 20 million people, you hear that and you're supposed to think, and this is why it's going to be. Very interesting to see how this plays out. Remember, the the vote for at least a partial repeal is supposed to happen today. Uh, we'll see if it comes down the way that we expect it to right now. Um, and Obama now—I'm just saying this on CNN. Obama is saying, "Don't rescue Republicans on Trump care." So they're really daring Republicans now to repeal this thing. That's that's where this has gone. That's the current circumstance. They're saying that if there's a sort of gap in coverage that occurs or people lose coverage blame Republicans right away for this. Uh, This is where I'm wondering if Paul Ryan, who's a wonky guy from people I know who have actually spoken to him and worked with him, is able to understand both the realities of Obamacare and the politics of this, because the 20 million insured, that's that's a lot of people. That's not a lot of people as a percentage of the overall healthcare market, really, it's less than 10 percent, right? 300 plus 300 plus million Americans, 20 million get their health care through Obamacare. But, for example, that number that's out there and that sticks in people's minds doesn't clarify the situation the way that it should. Obamacare is largely this this 20 million expansion that they always talk about is largely just an expansion of Medicaid. Now, that's been a very important component of this. Although uh, the r- researchers from the Heritage Foundation have looked into it. I know Heritage is conservative, but you know the numbers are numbers. And they said that from the end of 2013 to the end of 2015, 14 million people gained coverage. So there's not 20 million. So there's an actual net gain of 14 million because the 20 million comes from survey data that doesn't really look at whether people lost or gained a, uh, whether there was a sort of Uh, You know, if somebody has a health care plan, but then chooses a health care plan on the exchange, that shouldn't be counted as somebody who gets coverage because they were already were covered. Right. So even if you have an addition into the exchange, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've expanded coverage, which is one of the main purposes of this. Uh, But also it doesn't take into account or doesn't clarify that all those 14 million, 14 million, 11.8 million gained uh, their insurance through Medicaid and 2.2 million through private coverage. So about 2 million people really bought plans on the exchange as individuals the way that we're sort of always led to believe everybody's buying their policies on the exchange. And I can tell you this. I've gone into uh, some doctor's offices over the last 12 months you know, for checkups or little bouts of illness here or there, and I've seen lots of signs that just want to make very clear from the onset, we do not accept any exchange plans here. So my own my own personal experience with this would be, wow, it would not be it would not be a good thing or not be an easy thing to be dealing with an Obamacare exchange plan and then try to actually get health care. This is the difference between actual health care and coverage. I mean, you can be covered. You could have an insurance policy that says that you've got a million dollar deductible. I mean, no one would have that, but you know what I'm saying? And everything over a million dollars, they'll cover. Although I'm sure some corporations, and so there are instances where that's a real thing, but for an individual in the healthcare market, it's not. Uh, but just coverage is just a, a contract. Uh, coverage is just an agreement between you and some insurer for li- that, that states and then lays out the various liabilities. Healthcare is you know you got a problem, someone's trying to help you fix it, who's trained to do so, and getting that if you're somebody on the exchanges has not necessarily been easy. Um, so a lot of it has been through Medicaid and the studies on Medicaid, by the way, I know we're, we're going down the healthcare rabbit hole a little bit here. we'll talk about Assange and WikiLeaks and Russia and stuff in a few minutes. That'll be fun. And then some other fun stories. I got so much, so much show today and so little time and we're only in the first segment. Uh, but going back to the Obamacare thing for a second, because it's it's important, right? It matters. I know it's not necessarily sexy to talk about, like we don't sit here and learn all this fascinating history of the American healthcare system. And, and I can't play cool sound effects and all the rest of it. But it, it does impact all of us in our day to day lives. Because even if we're not in the individual market buying on the exchanges, the, uh, well, first of all, the taxpayer dollars that are being used to prop this thing up via the incentive, via the uh, subsidies, rather, for people to buy these exchanges, I mean, that's just coming out of, in one way or another, the public purse. Uh, But then also you look at what this does long term, what this will do to the insurance market for all of us. And it it matters. And any of you who have been really sick and really had to count on your insurance. And it was a question of, you know, if your if your policy is good, you're going to be able to pay your bills. If it's not, you're going to rack up credit card debts and maybe not be able to pay your rent for a while. And, you know, you get some real financial jeopardy. You understand uh, how serious this stuff is. I mean, I've had to make very tough decisions myself based on what insurance will cover what it won't cover i mean i was going to have a operation what was it now five years ago to fix to fix my ankle i mean as it was described to me by an orthopedic surgeon i'm going through life with a flat tire that's what he said um meanwhile like in the past year i probably got in better shape than i've been in since i was like 26 but the the point is yeah i mean i i deal with uh I deal with that. But when they told me what the possible cost of the operation was, and then also what the possible liability of it was, meaning they tell you that it costs $20,000, your insurance will pick up all but, you know, four or $5,000. And that was like all the money that, I mean, that that was like going to clean out the the bank of buck. Um, And, but then also, by the way, if they have to do a couple of other things and if the wrong anesthesiologist shows up, I mean, your total liability might be like 40 or 50 grand. I was like, well, how does this work? You know, I thought I was in network. Oh, well, you know, you're not really in network if, if the wrong person, if a, if a different anesthesiologist shows up, he's just going to charge you and send you a bill. And Oh, well, can we prevent that? Oh, then no, we can't really promise you. You know, that's not really how we do things here. OK, great. So, you know, I, I may get my ankle fixed, but I also may have no money at the end of this. And I know many, many thousands of dollars. So we've all dealt with this, I'm sure, at different times. Maybe you haven't, but a family member has, your kids have. So this stuff really matters. And it also goes to the heart of many debates we have about conservatives as to whether, We live in a uh, a free real free market economy where you have real choice over your health decisions and the doctors you see or or whether the government gets to pick for you. Healthcare is very personal and a government that gets to make these choices for you is in many ways this sort of uh, epitome of government overreach and big government gone uh, gone or run amok I should say. All right, I went a bit longer on the Obamacare thing. Uh, 888-900. Oh, it's so good to say those numbers. 888 3393 At Buck Sexton on Twitter. Team Buck, so good to be back with you. Give me a few minutes.
0: You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show.
2: Team, phone lines are open here, 888-900-3393. I just got to tell you, uh, (laughs) the Congress and the actions of this Congress over the next few weeks is going to really set a tone. And so there is a sort of heightened political, you could say almost like a political frenzy going on right now. There's a tremendous amount of scrutiny on every action of this Congress because People are going to look at this. They're going to say to themselves, all right, are they in, as I heard Mike Pence say, I think it was this morning, but it might have been last night. Are they in the promise keeping business or not? Are they going to keep their promises? I think people find that this is uh, really going to set a tone and the Congress has made certain promises and Donald Trump has made promises And now we get to really see this is going to be fascinating because there's really not much of a roadblock in the way they have the House. They have the Senate. There's nothing that should be stopping them. There's nothing that should be really stopping them uh, from enacting their agenda. Yeah, I know there's some parliamentary tricks that they can pull and the Democrats can stand to thwart some things here and there, but we should see a lot of action. Uh, because really the, the Trump presidency is going to have to be a results-oriented presidency. It, 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 he came in with a lot of messaging and a lot of talk, as politicians do, but obviously no political record to speak of, right? So he couldn't point at things and say, well, I got this bill passed. Like, And maybe that's a good thing. Again, we'll find out in time. Uh, but the way that this Congress... Positions itself from the start, and this is also why I think you can see the Democrats, there's a nervousness that you haven't really been able to pick up on before, um, that the Democrats are increasingly in a position where they will not be able to just sort of sit around and say Republicans have no policies and no plans. That's what we were told when they weren't in the majority for quite a while, or when they didn't at least have both sides of it. They'd say that they were obstructionist to Obama's agenda, right? So that went as far as people starting to claim that Obama should just go around the Congress, right? And this was an Obama mantra for a while. I'm going to go around Congress. And Republicans have no ideas. They're just obstructionists. They're just obstructionists. Watch what it looks like when that shoe is on the other foot because it's about to happen. You're going to see Democrats who all of a sudden are talking about runaway, uh, you know, runaway, hyper-partisan, Republican-controlled Congress. Oh, it's terrible what they're doing. All these things are so terrible. Um, so and w- with no trace of irony, with no sense of, wait a second, isn't this just the pendulum swinging to the other side now after uh, Democrats were able to have their way? And Obamacare is in many in many ways a prime example of this. They've rammed this down the throats of the Republican opposition. I mean, it was just jammed down there. And now they're going to pull it out. Now they're coughing it up and maybe they're going to ram some stuff down the Democrats throats. We'll see. But this is what happens. And that the Democrats seem almost to be, I think it's all for show, but caught off guard by the Oh, you mean they're you mean they're really going to replace Obamacare? Yeah, dude, or do that, they're really gonna replace Obamacare. That that's what they said they're gonna do, repeal and replace. They've been saying it, they held all those votes. And now if they go through with it, that's called keeping promises to those that voted for you to give you the power to do these things in the first place. But The pearl clutching from Democrats as Obamacare gets repealed will be epic. They're trying to
1: make America sick again. Oh, no. Good heavens. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: radio network all right team hold on one second here um, Sarah I'm gonna send you the uh, the number because we've got a different number for our guests we, we got John Schindler joining us uh, in just a second here but we have uh, a new radio set up in the new year and so that means that there's going to be the occasional the occasional uh, s- uh, situation normal all messed up but in the meantime, um, I just wanted to point out that there was this interview last night uh, that uh, Sean Hannity did with Julian Assange, and I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of questions from people that are sort of well, well-intentioned, well well-informed, and they're like, why do you, why do you take this negative tone towards Assange? Now, I was still in, I think I, I definitely still had an active TSSEI clearance, and I forget exactly when the WikiLeaks thing broke. I think I was at NYPD Intel division at the time. I'm now old enough that like parts of my life blur together. You know, once you get to 35, it, it all just starts to blur. Um, but I remember when Assange was part of the WikiLeaks, uh, uh, WikiLeaks dump of hundreds of thousands of classified U.S. government cables. And this was all under the general rubric of whistleblowing. And I was like, well, why is this a whistleblow? Uh, so Someone am explain that. why is this whistleblowing? Um uh, that never really was answered to my satisfaction. And when we saw the information that was released and also, of course, the intelligence community had all this stupid stuff that they were saying at the time, like, if you have a clearance, don't you better not go and access the WikiLeaks site and see what's there. I'm like, Oh, okay. So the whole world can go online and read this stuff, but if you actually have the access to it on your own to you know, if you're legally allowed to see and, and read this stuff, uh you're not supposed to I mean this is the stuff that the you know the Intel community sometimes really is the is the gang that can't shoot straight um it, it that is a thing that is real. Uh, I just wanted to say that they they do make mistakes and they do have some very foolish policies and it moves very slowly and it still sometimes thinks it's in the cold War but I digress um but Assange was answering some of these questions that uh, people have been posing to me like well buck, why do you Assume that Assange is working with the Russians. I mean, I, I, can, work you, I can work through some of this with you. Um, I can take you through some of this. And others of it, I just have to say, it's really a uh, somewhat of a gut instinct. Right? I know that Assange, for example, uh, requested Russian security at the Ecuadorian embassy. That, to me, seems quite strange. Uh, the, the Ecuadorian embassy in the U.K., which is where Hannity conducted the interview last night, and Hannity asked him the real questions. He, you know, did you, you know, and he, and he hit it a couple of times. Did Russia, um, did Russia have any hand whatsoever in the hack of the Podesta emails? Was there anything going on there? Uh, here, let's play it. Uh, Sarah, play clip one, please.
3: You did not get this information about the DNC, John Podesta's emails. Can you tell the American people a thousand percent you did not get it from Russia or yes. anybody
4: associated with Russia? We, we can say um, we have said. Uh, repeatedly uh, over the last two months uh, that our source uh, is not the Russian government uh, and it is not a state party. Our publications uh, uh, had wide uptake by the American people, they're all true um, but that's not the allegation that is being presented uh, uh, by the Obama White House. So why such a, uh, a dramatic response? Well the, the reason is obvious uh, they're trying to delegitimize uh, Trump administration as it goes into the White House.
2: We're joined now by our friend John. I mean, sorry, we're joined now by our friend John Schindler. He is formerly of the NSA. He's currently the columnist for New York Observer. Read his latest at Observer.com. He follows this issue very closely. John, thank you for joining us on the Tech issues. great to have you as always. Happy New Year. Same to you, Buck. All right. Uh, I assume you saw the Hannity interview last night. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I don't have people down. that I know who are who are good, smart conservatives, not in media, just, you know, people, n- n- normal, 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 people with yeah. real with real jobs, normal people uh, who, normal. who are emailing yeah. me and they're saying, but why? Yeah, Assange is slimy and he's gross. But how do you know he's lying this time? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just ask Schindler to come on. He could tell you why he's lying <laughs> this time. So you, 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 you well, go. you tell.
3: Yeah, look, look, Assange lies about everything. This is an accused rapist. He's on the lam. He's not remotely credible. He used to have a show on RT. He he, he transmits naked Russian propaganda unfiltered. As for this exact interview, which, I'm, you know, I, I don't think Sean Hannity you know, is looking real good in this. He's turning into the, the Mariah Carey of the uh, conservative uh, news sphere with this one, in my opinion. Uh, you know, giving Assange a license to put out lies without without questioning them. But let's get to the facts. The facts are: what happened with Democratic emails is not in question. This has been established by the U.S. government, numerous outside experts. These were long-time hacking uh, fronts associated with the Kremlin, with Russian military intelligence, or GRU. They were not subtle. They wanted us to know this. They could have done it a lot more subtly. They wanted us to know, and we do know. Look at what Assange says. He, in a very lawyerly way, uh, he has lawyers on call said it wasn't the Russians or a state entity. Oh, okay, well, no one's suggesting a, a guy in a Gru uniform showed up at the Ecuadorian embassy in London and gave him... Yeah these emails
2: he, he's the, the, the he almost, loophole he leaves himself with that statement and he's very precise is enormous yeah. which is yeah it was through yeah. a cutout which we all thought anyway
3: cut out of course and anyone who's remotely acquainted with espionage understands what he's doing here he can say well it wasn't the russians right it was some guy working for the russians who wasn't actually russian that's normal in these sorts of sorts of situations so i, I would pay no attention to what assange says whatsoever he needs to cover himself well he's already probably facing a lot of federal U.S. charges under sealed indictment from his involvement in the Snowden affair. This would add a whole lot more. Uh, he's probably already going to wind up dying in Supermax at some point anyway, frankly. Um, you know, why make it even longer?
2: You really think so? You, you, you think yeah, he's going to yeah,
3: serve I mean, time for all this stuff? Absolutely. He, he cannot dodge this forever. And the minute he gets out of that embassy, the U.S. government is going to apply massive pressure on Britain, with whom we have an extradition treaty. And by the way, he well could be facing charges in Britain as well, because what he's done is very much harm British national security. Um, this yeah, and the, the Brits, people don't
2: know anyway. this, but the Brits with their national security, and I know you know oh, this, John, yeah. uh, their Official Secrets Act is some scary stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the standard of evidence they, they require to convict someone in Britain is far lower than the United States. And maybe he won't go to supermax, but Julian's going to jail somewhere. And I don't mean some nice Swedish tennis prison jail. Uh, I, I, I mean a real one in, in a Western country that he's harmed. It's just a question of time. The Ecuadorians won't keep him forever. Uh, and it's going to end badly for him. So I understand he doesn't want to implicate himself in more international crimes. But the fact that anyone would take this seriously, I, I can't explain it except willful disbelief. And that the Trump campaign has jumped on this and said, hey, listen to Julian um is beyond is just bizarre beyond words i mean i understand John, I can, we keep, can we keep can we keep you through a break here yeah. and, and
2: finish us up on the sure. other side you have a few minutes uh all right Absolutely. guys we got john schindler uh at 20 committee on twitter he's at the new york observer go to observer.com for his latest but also follow him on twitter if you want to know what he's up to because he's a prolific tweeter uh john uh, we'll be right back team stay with me
0: buck sexton, buck sexton. dispensing the truth
1: on the blaze radio network
2: All right, team, we're back. We've got our friend John Schindler at 20 Committee on Twitter, columnist for New York New York Observer. Read his latest on Observer.com. John, I wanted you to respond to what uh, Assange had to say about how easy it was to hack Podesta. Play clip two, please.
4: We published the, uh, several Podesta emails, which shows uh, Podesta uh, responding to a phishing email. Now, how did they respond? Uh, Podesta gave out. Uh, that his password was the word password.
0: Hmm. Uh,
4: his uh, own staff said, this email that you've received, uh, this is totally legitimate. So, so this is something a 14-year-old kid, a 14-year-old kid uh, could have hacked uh, Pod- the Podesta that way. Now,
2: uh, John, fair to say, true perhaps, but we've got a lot of information yeah. about who actually hacked, Right.
3: Of course. We know who it really was. It was uh, Russian military intelligence. And look, Julian's just a pasty-faced computer geek who's been trapped in an embassy for years with time on his hands. Yes, of course Podesta and others were stupid of subtle cybersecurity to be subject to a spear phishing attack, which could happen to anyone, to have awful passwords that are password. It's laughable, except for the fact it's kind of like saying, well, I broke into their house and stole all their stuff because it was their fault because they left the door unlocked. It doesn't change the fact that it's theft, that it's breaking and entering. It's still a crime. It's still wrong. Yes, the DNC did a terrible job here. That's not up for debate. It was stupid of them. But you know what? I'm willing to bet the RNC wasn't a whole lot better, and I'm willing to bet the Russians have their emails too. I bet my bottom dollar they have them, and they're holding them as insurance for when the Republicans upset Moscow, and then they'll expose them. Who knows? Maybe even via WikiLeaks. Julian is, is just covering his tracks to avoid more jail time, but this is just taunting. It's silly.
2: You know, you got Trump saying stuff about the intel community, and obviously the media is loving this because the more they can drive a wedge between Trump and the intel community, the more also down the line they can say, see, you know, from day one, he wasn't listening to them. And any blunder he makes on foreign policy will be rightly or wrongly attributable to the fact that he had a bad relationship with the intel community. So, I mean, I I think that's uh, the, the narrative, at least the political narrative there, is obvious enough. But what troubles me is this notion that, yeah, you can have a leaked assessment from, you know, a leaked assessment that's still classified to The New York Times or something. I I can and I was willing to the time. I was like, look, we we don't know. Let's wait until we actually have an official statement from them. You know, you can't run national discussions based off of selective leaks to left leaning papers that hate Donald Trump. That's fair. But the intel community has really said now, no, no, it, it really was Russia. And I'm hearing people say, "Well, Buck, why would you trust the intel community?" I'm looking at them. I'm like, "Uh, "Is that where we are now?" Uh, This is a little disconcerting. And this is also the
3: product of Russian propaganda. This is thanks to Snowden. Okay, let's make this very clear. Who's been living in Moscow since June of 2013, and his propaganda offensive with 1.5 million stolen classified U.S. government documents has to create doubt worldwide, but especially among Americans, about the intelligence community, presenting them as criminals they can't possibly be trusted. And this is awfully useful for Donald Trump right now to say, gosh, these people all lie. You and I, Buck, we know the intelligence community. We've been in it. We know there are goofballs. There are morons. There are fools. But by and large, they are upstanding, law-abiding American citizens who, like the cops, protect Americans while they sleep and don't expect a lot of thanks for it except for a paycheck. And the reality is the entire IC is unified behind the belief that this hacking was done by the Russians, and the Russians passed it to WikiLeaks. Therefore, WikiLeaks is a Russian intelligence front operation. Okay, This is not really debatable. We can still debate exactly what effect – Politically, Putin and company wanted in in America. Was it definitely Trump being elected? Was it simply chaos? Was it just a vendetta against Hillary Clinton or some combination? That I'm willing to have that debate.
5: There is is some
2: information, isn't there, John, that that this was that the spearfishing that worked here against Podesta was part of a much larger a uh, much larger Absolutely. effort to just sort of see, just hoover up
3: all the information they could. They were hoovering up pretty much every U.S. government entity they could find, including the Pentagon, the White House, over 1,500 attacks in 2015 alone. This was a massive Russian intelligence operation, which, again, they knew that we knew it was them. They could have been subtle about this they just didn't care they didn't feel I mean right they're
2: basically Barack leaving Obama. like little emoji furry Russian bears That's, with hammers and sickles on their chests behind I mean this
3: alphabet stuff behind they're not even being subtle they, they want us to know the, look they're good hackers are really good they're as good as ours and they can cover their tracks they didn't bother to which says a lot about their assessment of both Barack Obama and Donald Trump frankly and the American public needs to demand a little more honesty from our incoming president uh, I understand he doesn't want to do that, but the lying about this, he's put himself into a corner now, and it's hard to see how he gets out of it.
2: Is it a fair criticism in your mind to point out that the Chinese OPM hack, Josh Ernest, had to talk about this? Uh, actually, do we have time to play that, sir? Um, ah, well, no, it's all right. The, the yeah. Chinese OPM hack happened, and right. we were told, like, ah, oh, you know, stuff happens. And then the Podesta email hack happens, and it's like DEFCON 1, and we're all going to die. Right. Well,
3: I I think that's a fair criticism. The Obama administration has overseen the greatest collapse of counterintelligence and security in American history. The only thing that remotely comes close was the very beginning of the Cold War when the Soviets stole the atom bomb from us thanks to the Rosenbergs. That's the only real parallel, and I think this is arguably even worse in terms of the amount of data, that sensitive and classified data the U.S. government has lost since 2009. But let me be very clear. Obviously, it is a different thing when you expressly go after a political party to interfere in our election. I was begging the Obama administration years ago to get serious about Russian and Chinese espionage and propaganda against us. They came into this very late, so late to the point it's not really going to have any impact. But it is a different thing when you're trying to influence our election versus stealing the background information of 22 million Americans, of whom I was one and I bet you were too, Buck. So, oh, yeah. Uh, this, I got that fun, you, get, you got that fun letter, letter, letter
2: in the mail being like, hey, the Chinese I know sure everything. <laughs> sorry, sorry yeah. foreigners
3: know everything about you uh here's some free credit monitoring for three months right uh you know it, it really inspires a great deal of confidence in the government i I, I can't tell you you know it, it's a fair criticism, but at some point we all just need to move on and start taking taking this seriously. And obviously, you know I've been sharply critical of Obama for years on counterintelligence security, and it looks like Obama, uh, you know, may not be the worst. Trump doesn't seem to want to do anything about the Russians, and I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope. What do you think Trump says, because...
2: John? I just want to ask you this before we before we yeah. were running into a hard break in about thirty seconds. Uh, what do you think Trump does once he gets this briefing on the? Is he just going to say the intel community is still full of it?
3: Well, if he does that, he's going to have serious problems with his incoming defense secretary, uh, Jim Mattis, who knows the truth. uh, And you're going to have a bureaucratic war in your hands, and it's going to get real ugly real fast. So I'm hoping the president-elect comes to his senses once the facts are explained to him. And they are facts. They're not
2: opinions. John Schindler is the national security columnist for the New York Observer. Read his latest at Observer.com. Also, follow him on Twitter, at 20Committee. John, great to have you, sir. Thanks for making the time. Same to you. Team, we'll be, we'll be, uh, well... 888-900-3393. 888-900-3393. I haven't spoken to any of you unless you called into the Rush Limbaugh show uh, in the last couple of times in many, many days. So I miss you all. So let's chat. Uh, we've got a couple of guests lined up in the next hour, but we'll make time for calls, too, if you uh, light up these lines. 888-900-3393. Um, also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton will be posting some stuff there. I think we've got uh, Andy McCarthy up next and all kinds of fantastic stuff. Hour two already upon us. Time flies when you're in the Freedom house.
0: The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. now spreading freedom across
1: the nation this is Three, two, the buck sexton show
2: all right team welcome back to the freedom hunt uh, we are very pleased to be joined by our friend andy mccarthy he's a former federal prosecutor currently he is uh, uh with national review andy thank you so much for calling in do we have andy
5: yeah i'm here Hello? There we go.
2: Sorry, I we didn't hear you for a sec. All right, great to have you, sir. Uh, let's talk about your latest. I talked about this yesterday when I was in for Rush. The uh, GOP ethics, what was the Office of Ethics or something? Office of Congressional Ethics, OCE. You're saying amateur hour. Right. What
5: happened there? Well, you know, look, I, I think, Buck, the timing of raising this was idiotic. You know, let's be honest. It was like politically, um, if you were sitting around a table and, and saying, What's the stupidest thing we can fly out of the box with uh, in, a, in a moment when we finally, after 10 years, have control of both houses of Congress and the White House, and we have in front of us an ambitious agenda, an urgent need to deal with Obamacare, uh, you know, Trump has this tax reform, trade reform, all these big uh, items uh, to, to come to start out even before the session began uh, in a unilateral way with trying to. Uh, clip the wings of something that's perceived by the public, to the extent the public even knew about it before five minutes ago. As a Which is very few of them, but yes, body right. Um, you know, it was it was really really dumb politics, uh, and I, I think in some ways the Republicans ought to thank Trump uh, because not only did his tweet um, grab all of the attention, it made them. You know, have a moment of, uh, of, of thankfully, of, of clarity of saying, you know, what are do we doing OR ourselves here? And they pulled the plug on it. So instead of becoming, you know, a three-month story, it's a one-day story. Uh, I hope it's a one-day story. So
2: <clears throat> interesting as the media covered it yesterday, Andy. The New York Times wrote how they were there was an effort to uh, to eliminate or to, or to kill the office of congressional ethics, and then later would say, well, they're trying to gut it. Uh, So there was the reporting was was both that it was being eliminated and it was just being altered. But you're right. It's a political loser. And I mean, Trump actually seemed to see this. And some members of Congress didn't. It It doesn't matter if they were changing, you know, how many pens and pencils the secretaries are given on day one. Doesn't matter because it looks bad.
5: Right. No, it looks terrible. And, you know, I don't think they meant to prioritize it. I just think they did it under the uh, structure of establishing rules for the new session, uh, which they're entitled to do unilaterally because they're the majority. But the way it then played out was that the Republicans unilaterally gutted an ethics panel, which since the ethics panel was created by the Democrats in 2008 to exploit Republican uh, corruption scandals that were, you know, the fallout of those was underway in 2008 when this thing uh, was foisted on us. um, It looked terrible. It looked like, uh, you know, uh, we finally got our – hands back on the wheel, and this is what we want to start with. But all that said, this panel is, to my mind, w- once I was informed about it, and I must say I never heard of it before uh, yesterday or the day before either, uh, but it's kind of like a civilian review complaint board uh, that that uh, or some p- civilian complaint review board that oversees uh, and investigates uh, allegations of misconduct by the New York city police department, um, which, you know, by the way, I looked at uh, Heather McDonald's book yesterday. Uh, do you know how many of those complaints that the, the, the complaint review board, uh, actually verifies? Um, it's about 7% to give you some sense of, um, you know, of of how effective these things are. But this thing was, uh, to me, it was an unconstitutional body because it didn't, even though it was created by Congress, it was created as kind of an independent body that didn't report and wasn't accountable and wasn't elected by anyone. It didn't. It wasn't part of the Congressional Ethics Committee. And you know, I know this gets into the weeds for, weeds for people, and I, I apologize for that. But the ethics process is actually put together in a pretty careful bipartisan way. It's the only committee in Congress where you have 10 permanent members, five on each from each party, no matter what the uh, what the division, you know, which party is in control of Congress. The ethics committee is always five and five from each party to, to try to keep it honest and make sure that it's not used because you can see how it can be used uh, abusively to raise into ethical problems, things that are only rumors uh, and the like, which if they get branded as something that's being looked into by an ethics body can be used in political ads against people. And you know the public, let's, let's face it, when they hear these things, they're, what, what they get out of these messages is that somebody's being investigated by something that's called an ethics panel, uh, not that there's anything actually to the allegations. So what the Republicans wanted to do was bring this thing under the oversight of the ethics committee which everybody should be comfortable with because they, there's an equal number of Democrats and Republicans on each side. They're elected members of Congress. So they are answerable to the public. If they do anything shady, um, they're going to, you know, pay a price for that. And, you know, it's not like, as Jim Garrity at National Review pointed out, it's not like they're the only body doing investigations of corruption in Congress or that they're the most important ones. Uh, in fact, when I was at the Justice Department, the worst thing you wanted to see if you were a prosecutor was Congress doddering its way like a bull in a china shop into the middle of something that you were trying to investigate. I don't mean to sound arrogant this way, but as a professional trained law enforcement person. so Yeah, this is, you know, I said this yesterday on Russia show.
2: It's not like the elimination of this office means that now congressmen can take paper bags of cash under the table and the FBI and the DOJ and everything are going to say, well, you know, there's no office of congressional ethics. So I, I guess we just have to look the other way. But again, it was, it was sort <laughs> right. of a mountain out of a mole. It was a political issue much more so than a, as you point out, once you get down to the weeds, it may make sense. It may not make sense. I mean, it depends on what exactly they were going to plan to do with it, but it still was a political loser. Andy, you were former uh, federal prosecutor. Everyone listening knows X. I introduced you that way, but you're, somebody who's had a lot of people, I'm sure, over, over the years, in the past hopefully not so much anymore, although who knows, uh, lie to you. Julian Assange saying that he is uh, – did you see the interview by any chance?
5: Nope. Wouldn't, wouldn't give it the time of day. I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, Buck, when uh, the New York Times gave its pages to the leadership of Hamas to write op-eds, uh, and conservatives, including on Fox News, used to be outraged that a major American media platform would be given over to enemies of the United States. So I, I still abide by that, uh, you know, regardless of which platforms being used. And to my mind, Julian Assange is an enemy of the United States. I wouldn't, here's when I'll be interested in what he says, Buck, when he identifies who the source was, and then we have something we can actually investigate because I don't want to take his word for it anyway. But the fact that he says, I didn't get it from X. When you and I both know, and you better than I, because you're more experienced on the intelligence end of this, but it's a commonplace in espionage, even if people are being borderline honest, and honesty is not exactly the, uh, you know, the, the, the lingua franca of, of intelligence work, right? But no, it is not. You operate, all the, <laughs> you operate all the time with cutouts, and plausible deniability is a big concept. In fact… The reason that we have what we call covert operations is so that we can deny what we did if we ever get called on it. That's, you know, part of the part of the deal. So and, my you know, my personally, my closest experience with this was I had to get involved in proving some of what we did as an intelligence community to aid the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, during the Soviet invasion and the jihad there. And. It was hard for me as a member of the Justice Department, even under court orders, to get cooperation from the intelligence community on that, even though books had been written on the subject by then, because they had given their word to their intermediary, we can now identify them as the Pakistani intelligence service, but I had trouble doing that at the time. That didn't become public, I don't think, till the 9-11 commission hearings, you know, years and years later. But the whole point of that Was that for 10 years everybody on the planet knew that the united states had basically armed and funded and and trained a lot of the afghan mujahideen against the russians and we we basically as an intelligence community even though everybody knew that denied it until it was finally uh you know public uh public record not public record in the media public record in you know in, in an official capacity in in hearings yeah I mean, we're, we're still declassifying
2: that... things from from uh, from vietnam and, and i think even world war ii in some
4: cases so
5: yeah but the, but if you're going to be effective in espionage one of the things that you have to learn to do and this is this is hard for people to grasp but it's important in terms of protecting the country is you have to look people in the eye including your enemies and lie to them that's what you do so you know, Julian Assange looked me in the eye last night, if I had been watching, uh, which I wasn't. Uh, but he looked America in the eye, as I understand it, and said the Russians didn't do it. You know, whoopee.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm surprised at how, how many people have, have trusted me on, on other issues of, of intelligence who, on this one, think that somehow I'm missing it. I'm like, really? Julian Assange, I mean, the, the WikiLeaks release of uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, the Chelsea Manning uh, purloined documents— That wasn't whistleblowing. That was just uh, airing a lot of confidential U.S. government material to hurt the United States. That wasn't people seem to have
5: forgotten that, that there was no whistleblowing.
2: There was nothing that there was no whistle that was being blown.
5: No. And hooking up Snowden with the Russians, um, you know, that was enemy activity. Uh, The damage that Snowden did in terms of what he took and leaked. I know, you know, there's a a segment of our population, for whatever reason, uh, wants to depict him as a heroic figure. And uh, I'm grateful that uh, uh, Edward J. Epstein actually dismantled that uh, in an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal this week. Uh, But Snowden is an enemy of the United States. Assange is an enemy of the United States. Um, When they speak, you have to assume it's propaganda because they don't have America's best interest at heart. And I think it's a really bad thing for people who support the incoming president, who I, you know, I wasn't a, a Trump supporter during the primaries, but I certainly tried to help his campaign from the sidelines and I did vote for him. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who uh, supported Trump ultimately in the election. Um, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that people are enemy of the enemies of the United States just because they are fleetingly saying something that may be helpful and expedient for us in the moment, um, because they still are who they are—it's kind of you know—I tear my hair out when we're in the middle of some policy debate, and some conservative says, you know, Alan Dershowitz agrees with us, or you know, Jonathan Turley agrees with us. Um, yeah, you know, I'm always glad for as much agreement as I can as I can muster and as I can get on my side, but at the same time, I have a I have a big problem with the idea that somebody who I think is wrong on policy probably 80 or 90 percent of the time, suddenly, you know, once in a blue moon agrees with me on something and I'm supposed to go up in a balloon about that. You know, I just I I feel the same way about the enemy. You know, uh, occasionally uh, they're going to say things that are helpful to one side or the other of a policy debate. But I don't think that we ought to ever factor that in without reminding ourselves constantly and up front that the information has to be discounted because they're enemies of the United States.
2: Andy McCarthy is a best selling author and contributing editor at National Review. Uh, Andy, great to have you as always. Please come back soon. Thanks so much, Buck. Uh, team, we'll be right back.
1: Buck Sexton, The
2: Blaze Radio Network. Uh, I don't know. We, I usually don't talk about things like Mariah Carey's New Year's Eve performance. And no doubt I'm, I'm late on the uptake here in the sense that this has already been, uh, this has already received a whole lot of uh, attention. She threatened, or she said that she was sabotaged, and then Dick Clark Productions threatened to sue for defamation. And if you haven't seen it, by the way, uh, I stayed in New Year's Eve. Uh, Miss Molly and I just sort of had, you know drank our own champagne and and hung out. you know, we're near the beach, so we just sort of opened the windows, let the waves bring in the new year. i I avoided there was a great meme with a photo of Drake that I saw on uh, Drake also is a is a singer performer for those of you who are unfamiliar. Um, and it was like three it was he was making a frowny face, and the the caption was, I spent $300 so I could have a glass of champagne and some chicken fingers. And that's pretty much New Year's Eve in a nutshell from, from most of my experience. So I, I tend to try to avoid going out on it. So that means that, that meant that I did see that Mariah Carey thing the night that it happened uh, where she had a disastrous performance. And, and what I always think to myself is, when do, you know... Um, I'm probably going to get myself into trouble here. But, you know, Mariah, Madonna... I I th- I feel like their their music acts should evolve a bit as they become more distinguished ladies. Is that the you know, I I'm not sure that the sort of uh, very Oh, I was and it's funny actually because I was asked about uh the how uh, Megan Kelly dresses at Fox News on air yesterday on Rush Limbaugh's show. And look, Megan was always nice to me. So all I have to say is that Megan's always nice to me. And, you know, I let others talk about these sorts of things. Um, But when it comes to like music performers who, one, I don't know. So they haven't been nice to me. And two, uh, are really putting it out there sometimes. I just wonder. I mean, there was a there was a Jennifer Lopez video. If you haven't seen it, I would I don't know if I can recommend you watch it because I my eyes were scarred. It was like somebody had taken a white hot poker to both of them. Um, because it was Jennifer Lopez and I believe Iggy Azalea, and the entire music video, and I wasn't even really aware that they still really make a lot of these music videos in the first place. entire music video was a, a fair amount of it was just a lot of of um bottoms being jiggled. I think that's the way, that's the way we'd have to phrase it. Uh, and whether you are you know that's your cup of tea or not, I just feel like there's this uh, there's this expectation, or or rather, we're supposed to accept that, you know, as people as people enter a different phase in their lives, maybe a slightly different approach, maybe a slightly less overtly uh, sexualized approach to their craft might be warranted. People get very sensitive about this, by the way. Who I don't know. Why, you know, it's like when you criticize Beyonce, they all they all come after you. But you know, I was sitting there watching this Mariah Carey thing. I'm sure she still has a great voice, although I, you know I don't know. I don't. I haven't heard her in a while. But the sort of like skin tight unitard thing and all that is that really still? You know, Madonna also kind of who's older I believe by a bit than Mariah Carey, still doing these things. And for some reason, this is an area of art or of performance that if you if you bring it up you're like a bad person Uh, you know it's you're you're being mean or something it's like well i don't know i i wouldn't stand up and like dance around shirtless for everybody because that's not really what i do and i don't think that's gonna bring in the viewers so you know just a thought on that whole new year's eve thing i don't maybe some of you probably might get mad at me but i just maybe i just don't like mariah carey that much bottom line back in a few
1: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: is buck sexton
1: on the blaze radio network
2: all right team we're joined now by our friend emily zanotti political editor at heat street she is em zanotti on twitter
6: what's up emily not much how's it going
2: happy new year did did you have a a fantastic and wonderful vacation i hope
6: i did i had a great vacation how about you
2: yeah, it was pretty chill. It was down in Florida. A lot of, lot of families, of which I, I I do not travel with family or my own family, I should say. So that was interesting, <laughs> you know. A little bit yeah. like being on the set of Captain Kangaroo. Isn't that the kid show? I don't know. I need to think of a new kid show. But <laughs> yeah, that was like that 50 is. years ago. I'm really sounding <laughs> that I'm was sounding real. A while really ago. yeah that was a bit ago okay like i don't barney the purple dinosaur is that back i don't even know what kids look at these days in terms of tv so i have no idea all right all right let's get into some of your pieces on (laughs) Heatstreet.com. oh wait no wait put a pin in that we're gonna do that uh mariah carey shaking the money maker maybe in like maybe time to just sing and a little less of that what do you think this is what i was saying before the break some people i think agree with me actually
6: you know, I think it might be time for Mariah Carey to go into retirement, to enjoy that massive shoe closet that she has in her penthouse apartment and just just let everybody remember the days of glitter and, you know, hero and, and the glory days of Mariah Carey. <laughs> Rather than, like, the, yeah, the I mean, Camel Toe and Rhinestone situation that happened on New Year's Eve. Whoa,
2: whoa, hey, oh, <laughs> whoa, Emily naughty. She's, she's letting it, let it rip. Okay, so, you, uh, yeah, you're not a Mariah person either, I hear you. Um, let's see what we got here. Uh, teen Vogue not setting high standards for serious journalism on social media. Oh, gosh, Teen Vogue, not something I've ever read, I can tell you, but I'm sure it's a thing people do read, especially teenagers. Mm-hmm. So what's going on here on HeatStreet.com?
6: So Teen Vogue has decided in the last few months that it's going to move into political coverage. It's going to get more serious. So instead of just covering Justin Bieber and the latest trends in prom dresses, they're going to cover Donald Trump, and they're going to cover murders. And it's its a mess. Um, apparently they have to compete with these other these other issues on on the web that that cover things from a political perspective and Lena dunham has one it's super fun and, and very uplifting um, but teen vogue decided to cover a murder that happened uh, i believe in middle america uh, where a woman and her mother were murdered by her ex-boyfriend and so instead of actually treating this with a seriousness required of actual journalism they decided to say oh that sucks that is so bad and with SO in capital letters on their Twitter feed.
2: Ah. Hmm. Teen Vogue should probably stick to, I don't know, Snapchat. My girlfriend tried to explain Snapchat to me and started showing to me. <laughs> and it's like some weird voodoo science. She's like you, you do all these swiping and it's it's a whole it's like a whole separate language. I really did feel like an old man. Snapchat though is what the cool kids use now.
6: Yeah, I feel like I am so old. I can't even figure out Snapchat. I know my husband does it, but I, I, it just freaks me out.
2: Yeah, and I still, I don't know why making my face into a dog, and I've, I've said this before, but I'll repeat myself, why that is appealing. Like, I, I, I don't know. You don't, you know, I want something that removes, removes red eye and blemishes. I, I'm old-fashioned that way.
6: You don't want one of those, like, digital flower crowns or, like, the stars that go around your head? I mean, come on.
2: I just I, I, just don't get it. All right, back to heatstreet.com. Media can't decide whether Trump's tweets are terrifying or not. What's going on here?
6: So over the last few days, the media has been kind of going back and forth on whether Donald Trump is the most powerful Twitter user of all time. Or the least powerful Twitter user of all time. So they've decided that because he tweeted about North Korea, we are all going to end up in a nuclear war and the United States is just going to be a sea of green glass. But yesterday, when Donald Trump stepped in to stop the House Republican committee from destroying the ethics board, suddenly they were like, it was not Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't do this. He's the least powerful social media user we've ever seen. He makes no difference. And then all of a sudden, later on that day, he was ba- they were back to saying that he was going to cause a nuclear war with just his phone and Twitter. So it's, it's this interesting dynamic that we've been watching of the media trying to decide whether they think Donald Trump is super powerful or if they think he's just a guy tweeting into the ether.
2: Well, this reminds me of, of during the Bush administration, It was either uh, Cheney was like running this all powerful cabal from behind the scenes and that everything the Bush administration did was was a calculated assault on humanity uh, for the for the benefit of Halliburton, which, you know, which Mm -hmm. people had never heard of until the Bush administration Um, or Bush was so dumb and the administration was so stupid that uh, they should just be constantly mocked because they can't tie their shoes. And I always point out to friends, I'd be like, you know, it's it's it can't be both, actually. <laughs> right. They can't be so you stupid that no, you can Darth never take Vader. them seriously, or so devious and brilliant that, uh, you know, they, they get away with everything.
6: Yeah, you can't be Darth Vader running the evil empire with your fingers in all the pies, and also have to write your policy briefings in crayon. I mean, you can't be both of those people, so... They, they're starting that again with Donald Trump. Like, he's this evil genius sitting up in his part, uh, penthouse apartment and deciding that everybody should be in nuclear war and we should be stockpiling nuclear warheads, or he's just an idiot who doesn't know how to use his phone.
2: All right, this is awesome. Uh, American teens are applying en masse to Canadian colleges to escape Donald Trump. Is this really a thing? I mean, people people want, they, they don't want to go to college. Americans don't want to go to college in America anymore because of Trump.
6: So this is a thing among sort of progressive-leaning Clinton voting, um, I guess, teens who probably didn't have a say in the election because they're just now applying to college. Um, and of applications from American students at the University of Toronto and the University of Montreal are both up by hundreds of percent. So... It went from like 70 applications maybe to like 2,000 at the University of Toronto. And so they're starting to, to wonder exactly why this is happening. And it turns out if you ask college students, they do say that they want to go to college outside of the U.S. because Canada is a safe haven away from Donald Trump. <laughs> because apparently, yeah. and according to the students that we quoted, um, apparently Donald Trump is such a terrible person that campus sexual assaults are going to skyrocket.
2: Wait, that's the reason?
6: That is the reason, yes. The,
2: the, wait, I, I did not know this. Trump is now partially responsible or, or, or will be responsible for a surge in campus rape culture? That's what the that's what the reasoning yeah. is here?
6: Yes, that, that Donald uh. Trump encourages campus rape culture, and so they're afraid that they're going to go to college and get assaulted, and it's going to be all Donald Trump's fault, so they're certainly going to go to colleges in other countries where, you know, the same protections don't apply, but Donald Trump isn't in office.
2: Yeah, wow. And they better bring a really warm hat and plenty of mittens, because uh, <laughs> yeah. Great White North, it gets cold. It gets cold up there, It does. I understand. <laughs> it was cold enough in central Massachusetts, uh, which I would not recommend for anybody, and that's a few, that, that's definitely a few degrees south uh, of the parallels we're talking about here with, with uh, Canada. All right, uh, Tom Arnold, who is apparently still a human being that gets media attention... <laughs> Um, I don't think he's done anything good since true lies which now again back in the 90s uh, he says that he wants gamers to hack into the database so that they could get the racist Trump the racist trump tapes that's what this is all about right. tell us about the racist the, the so-called or alleged racist Trump tapes
6: the mythical trump tapes that that they've been looking for since I September we've been since we've been hearing about them um, so I guess not happy that Roseanne, his former wife, was getting all of this attention for her crazy Twitter. He decided the last couple of days that he was going to tell everybody that he had access to these apprentice tapes that supposedly have Donald Trump using racial slurs. It turns out he doesn't. He doesn't know if they exist or whether they exist. And He wants hackers, and he went went out on Twitter and he placed a call and he said, here's the database, go in and see if you can find evidence that Donald Trump once used a racial slur on the set of The Apprentice. And apparently no one's taken him up on the offer, or it doesn't exist, because I haven't seen anything come across my desk. But he insists, he insists that he has Watergate-level journalists who will take these tapes and just blow it up.
2: Wow, and, and that's uh, that's what they're hanging their hats on here to, to destroy the Trump administration. There's lots of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they have for. like they're 10 still, days, so. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they are running out of time. One more here on HeatStreet.com. We're speaking to Emily Zanotti, their political uh, editor. An NFL player gave shotguns to teammates and anti-gun groups have panicked. Giving shotguns to teammates just sounds like a kind, thoughtful, and helpful maneuver. What's the problem here?
6: Is. And he's from North Dakota. He's um, a, a very adept hunter. He gave them these beautiful shotguns with silver handles on them and had their names and team numbers inscribed on, on the handles. They're, they're just beautiful. And so he gave them to his, his offensive line. And all of a sudden, gun groups found out about this, and they were like, these people cannot be trusted. So they took up a collection to send gun locks to these football players who had just received these shotguns for Christmas. But what they didn't really think about was that these gun locks that they were ordering wouldn't work on shotguns. So now not only does the offensive line of the Philadelphia Eagles have brand-new, beautiful shotguns, but they also have gun locks that don't work on them.
2: Stacy, what am I supposed to do with a gun rack? I don't even own a gun. What movie? Oh
6: gosh, I don't know. You
2: re- Zanati, you're really giving me a blank on that one? I am Wayne's World, classic. His gr- his, uh, his crazy ex
6: girlfriend
2: <laughs> Yeah, you live in Chicago. Wayne's World is like about <laughs> Chicago, isn't it? Or part of it at least.
6: Yeah. It's about Aurora. Yeah, right. that's where I learned
2: that's where I learned that Milwaukee means the good land and the Algonquins were the first settlers of it. Uh yeah. From Alice Cooper, obviously. But yeah, no, Stacy, his ex girlfriend, who's like, hi, Wayne, you know, that whole thing. She gives a gun That's rack. Right. Yeah. And he doesn't own a gun.
6: <laughs> I don't have any guns.
2: Um, sorry, we, we do We do action movie quote Friday, and I'm springing a comedy quote on you out of nowhere. Not really fair, but it's always the hot seat the Freedom Hut, Emily. You know that.
6: I know. I absolutely know. I'm going to have to brush up now. All right. <laughs> All
2: right. Yeah. Now you have an excuse. Yeah, you, and the, you and the Hubs can go watch Wayne's World. Emily Great, Zanotti yeah. is a political editor. Yeah, political editor at heatstreet.com. Do check out her latest and follow her on Twitter. Emily, thank you so much for making some time. Great to have you.
6: Thanks for having me and Happy New Year.
2: Happy New Year. Team, phone lines open 888 900 3393. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Buck Sexton Show,
1: the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show On the Blaze Radio Network
2: Ah, here's a name that hasn't been the headlines much in a while Former Attorney General Eric Holder has been hired to quote, help California fight the Trump administration So they've got uh, they're they're pulling together a team here to create legal trouble for Trump. He's going to be tapped as Holder is going to be tapped as outside counsel to advise the California legislature on potential challenges with the Trump government. And yeah, here's the quote: They get with the upcoming change in administrations, we expect that there will be extraordinary challenges for California in the uncertain times ahead. California Senate President. Pro, uh, Kevin De Leon, and assembly speaker, Anthony Rendon said in a statement, "Blah blah, yeah yeah." So they've got Holder in here. I always found Holder to be one of the in an administration full of characters of dubious uh, characters of dubious character. Uh, that sounds that sounds like uh, something from what's that movie with the uh, what's the mo- movie? Now um, I forget. I don't know. It sounds. What's with the guys who are the English guys who do the anyway? Characters of dubious character. Uh, Eric Holder is sort of in a class by himself, I think. Uh, between the Mark Rich pardon, which was so clearly just essentially the DNC being bribed to let someone completely escape uh, escape justice, um, and then you move on from that and everything with Operation Fast and Furious and the, the the lies that were told by Eric Holder specifically about that, and, and just also his, his general attitude towards, clearly towards the Republican Party, towards Republicans. I mean, the politicization of the Department of Justice that occurred under the Obama administration, I know that there's always been this focus on the civil rights division of the DOJ under Obama, because that's where... That's sort of the the most obvious place where there's been a lot of politicization. But it's it's sort of, it's really broader than that. Um, and you saw this, by the way, I had a friend who was sending me messages yesterday saying, you know, look at, you know, every tower in America, every water tower in America has Merrick Garland's name on it. How can this pass without, he was kidding, of course, but it's a great point. I mean, we had to talk about Merrick Garland all the time. Why? Uh, because it's all in the open now that the Supreme Court, it's been in the open for a long time, but that the Supreme Court is just a political tool, uh, for the Democrats, certainly. And I'll say this, uh, hopefully the Attorney General under a Trump administration will at least restore some sense of the law as something other than just an instrument of politics. Eric Holder's legacy, we talk a lot about Obama's legacy, I think Eric Holder's legacy um, is that he, and, and I think Loretta Lynch continued on with it, um, but he, he just made it nakedly partisan. Uh, the attorney general's office, well, the IRS investigation, uh, you know, of of targeting of the Tea Party. You go through all these different things. At not one point in Holder's tenure, did he take a, an action or make a decision or do something that was clearly at odds in a significant way with the power interests of the Democratic Party? That's all you have to know. That's really all you have to know. All right, team, Hour 3 coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, Excited to get into even more with you. Phone lines are open. You're You're listening
0: to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Freedom across the nation. This
1: is three, two, one. the Buck Sexton Show.
2: Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt for hour three. I want to talk to you a bit about some national security, but not really in the breaking news sense. More in the theoretical, uh, conceptual sense of things. Um, what you see, is some interesting things happening within conservatism when it comes to national security, obviously as a sort of corollary to the rise of Trump U S this is from the sun, a UK newspaper, U S sends special forces to Russian border as NATO is poised to strike back against Vladimir Putin's aggression. Uh, so there's this concern right now that the Kremlin is going to have nuclear capable missiles deployed in the Russian province of, uh, Kaliningrad, uh, which borders Poland, Belarus, and Lithuania. So there's a sort of Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. uh, And it's a place where the Russians are beefing up some of their strategic military military presence. And there's this discussion that's happening now as to whether, well, for a couple things. First of all, everyone is being told constantly that Trump is in the pocket of Russia, that Trump loves Russia so much, and we're supposed to take that um, well, in part, it's based on some of Trump's statements. I understand that. But uh, how in Russia's pocket, we'll have to see. I remember when George W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and or looked into his soul or whatever it was and saw a good man or a man he could work with. Uh, I think it was Nancy Pelosi who said, uh, unironically, years ago, that the road to peace in the Middle East runs through Damascus. Whoops. Uh, There's stuff running through Damascus, but it's not peace. It's uh, suicide, car bombs, Um, as well as all kinds of other uh, horrific atrocities of war. So we look at uh, what's going on right now in the Baltics and with our NATO obligations. And I I do think that you're going to see more of this discussion, this debate happening that I'm going to get into with you now. Uh, And that is maybe there's going to be some rethinking of how we approach all this stuff. Um, I I know that uh, with Trump sort of offhand and look, I all my friends and and, uh, colleagues from the sort of national security analysis side of things who at least do it publicly, not those who are still part of the intel community. They are taken aback at Trump's lack of knowledge on these issues. But understand that Obama's knowledge, for example, when he was coming in is forget about his ideology, just really his knowledge base uh, of national security and foreign policy was uh, very superficial. Uh, it, it was the sort of thing that you say at cocktail parties to sound like you read the New York Times every day when you read it a couple times a week maybe, uh, and that's all you do. But he had no, no in-depth knowledge or understanding of any of these places. Never once did I hear Obama speak about any area of the world where I thought, oh, well, this is somebody who actually has the knowledge of a practitioner or is in some way sharing with you insights that you gain from experience or real research and, and real in-depth Uh, real in-depth work on something. So Obama was always praised for his uh, sort of eloquence on international affairs. I mean, forget about the apology tour and all that, but it was to anybody who I think has spent real time on an issue. And and there's various gradations of this, right? I mean, when I was in the CIA, uh, I was drilling down to the individual level, but also in a specific country and a specific period of time, uh, I would also be it was like a grid and then it would get smaller and then I'd be looking at a, a one province and maybe a city and then clusters of individuals in that city. Or this is you have very granular knowledge and the building is full of people, with very granular knowledge. How useful that is at any given time is a, a whole separate discussion. But you know, I can tell you this. Nobody from the Iraq office was going to walk into the China office and come across like they knew what was going on and, and vice versa right it's just not really possible there there are uh there are experts there are subject matter experts we call them uh, SMEs, subject matter experts maybe people say SME but i think it's SME uh, th- and that's a real thing and obama never spoke like a subject matter expert on anything really in my and my uh recollection of it at least and on national security i think he was given a tremendous pass for being a true novice and not having any real uh, but there's also There's also not much stock that's put in new thinking. This is something I saw at the CIA, and it's something that you see now reflected in a lot of the policy discussions about issues like Russian deployments nearby NATO countries. And that is, if you want to sound smart, you just need to give an eloquent repetition of the consensus. You just need to use big, fancy words to reiterate, to repeat what has already been said about an issue and um, when that is considered the sort of smart position on it. Right. And there are a number of things for which we, we can point to a number of areas where you'll even yourself, you'll know. Oh, OK, well, you know, we need a sort of a, a multilateral ap- approach with allies in our counterterrorism fight, our counterterrorism fight. That's a meaningless statement. But people will go on TV because they're constantly asked in the three minutes of a TV segment or five minutes of a TV segment of which a counterterror expert might be given a full 90 seconds to speak, and if you're me, you're going to be given 60 seconds to speak, and you're going to be interrupted three times if you're on at least one of the networks. Uh, That's not Fox. And they are going to ask you, how do you fix things, or what can we do? And people say, oh, well, we need more cooperation with our allies. This is a meaningless statement. We're already cooperating with allies on any number of fronts when it comes to terrorism. Uh, It would have to be much more specific. But part of it is the time constraints, and part of it is also... You know, some of this stuff is complicated, but I just love. It. But that's what you say if you want to. Say, if you want people to nod their heads and go, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, more 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 cooperation with our allies. That's, that's a smart thing to do. Um, if you wanted to push a piece, and this was from pretty much anywhere in the intelligence community, if you wanted to push it beyond where the intel was, what you could do is say uh, somewhere in the analysis portion of it, right? Because different. There's a whole other language from the intelligence community of how they pull together these pieces, what they're called, whom the audience is for any one of these pieces, and the level of classification determines who it can go to sometimes. And But they would, uh, well, one thing you would see is, you know, the, the possibility for, quote, miscalculation. That was something i come up against. Oh, well, well, yeah, sure. This probably is going to mean nothing, policymaker, um, but there's always the possibility of miscalculation, right? If you wanted to sort of sex up your, analysis piece in the intelligence community you'd essentially do that which is a fancy way of well worst case scenario and this all of a sudden gets interesting how likely is the worst case scenario not very likely but thinking that challenges the prevailing orthodoxy on national security is always going to sound uh it was always going to be jarring to those who work in national security because it is one of the great because you don't even really have the clear bifurcation of two partisan sides to it. So you have national security, right? uh, Politics supposed to end at our borders, that sort of thing, which is not true. Of course, national security is very politicized. But you at least have the pretense that this is sort of beyond politics. And on some issues, it is beyond, right? I mean, we can all agree North Korea, Democrats and Republicans agree North Korea is bad. You know, Democrats might think it's because of like what America has done in the world or something, but nonetheless, they can agree North Korea is bad. And uh, we we, there's easier places, more obvious places for there to be uh, perhaps a bipartisan consensus to form than on a lot of domestic policy issues. But it's still an echo chamber. And the moment that you start to question the the echo chamber effect or you start to put in some dissonant notes into it, you're going to have all sorts of immediate pushback. And I always think it's a, a useful exercise. And I remember Christopher Hitchens speaking about this, uh, whom I, I've always found to be a very interesting guy. I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but he, it was provocative and interesting. And to, so few of the public intellectuals on the scene today, on national security, on any issue, really try to be um, both honest and provocative. They can be provocative, but they're partisan. Right? Um, and if they're being honest, it's usually about things that nobody really cares about. Right. So to be honest and provocative... Is, uh, is, is a rarity in the sort of modern discourse about every major issue in this country, I think. Um, and you, you see this time and again, but if you want to sound smart on, the, on these issues, you repeat a certain line. Um, and, and Hitchens was somebody who would bring up that, you know, even on the issue of flat earthers, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, they're such, they're such buffoons, you know, what a, what a dumb position. We all know the earth is round. Okay, yeah, we all know the earth is round. Why? Why do we know that? And you you begin to peel away at some of this and you'd say to yourself, OK, even if that is still a true thing, which it is, right? The earth is round. I'm not I'm not actually <laughs> advocating anything other than that. But uh, ask somebody, ask yourself, why? How do we know that? Could you explain to it? Could you explain to a 10 year old in 60 seconds why we know the earth is round? And what you start to get at is that there should always be the constant testing and retesting of orthodoxy, because orthodoxy is often just a fancy way of saying assumption, uh, It, it the, the false security of consensus, right? This is what we are told. This is what smart people say. And if you don't want trouble, this is what you are going to say. And I think that some of our uh, military posture, or I should say foreign policy and national security posture around the world falls into this category at this point. And that's not to say that it's wrong. It's just to say that you're not even allowed to break. OK, well, why? And I think this issue of the the Baltics that came up, there was a very, to me, interesting exchange between a few people here. You had Tucker Carlson speaking to Gary Kasparov. Uh, Tucker's doing a very good job with the new show over at Fox. Kasparov is a guy I like and is very interesting and has done my show both on Real News and I think we've had him on radio before, too. Um, many times in the past or numerous times, I don't know if many times is accurate, but. And Carlson said to Kasparov, why should I send my 19-year-old son to defend the Baltics? That's a, that's a worthwhile question. The answer to it may be because we need to uh, adhere to our obligations and uphold the international order and deter Russian aggression. And, and I understand all of that. But it's still a question that should be asked and answered. It's not a question that should be shouted down. And our our friend, and I will invite him on because I do not talk especially about people that we have had on the show who have been kind enough to give us their time. And uh, I'm not really offering a criticism so much as just illustrating uh, the argument here. But uh, our friend Tom Nichols, who has joined us before, wrote below in a tweet about that Carlson to Kasparov, why should I send my 19-year-old son to defend the Baltics question? He wrote, I remember when Carlson pretended to be a conservative. And then uh, Michael Doherty, who is a verified Twitter guy who is a a sort of a a writer, and uh, I see him popping up on Twitter, too, responded to that. American conservatism means committing yourself to the things the founding fathers valued, like maintaining Estonia's sovereignty, obviously being facetious here, but all illustrating quite an interesting point. If Russia did invade Estonia— Um, Whether you believe that we should act on our uh, Article 5 NATO obligations or not, Uh, if Russia did do something provocative like that, keep in mind that they would do it under Maskarovka, right? They would do it as a form of stealth warfare. It probably wouldn't be tanks. It would be, you know, there'd be some sort of a... Uh, you know, they'd say that a, a plane landed in distress and now there's concerns and they had to bring in another plane to secure the crash site and they've got sensitive military. I mean, you know, you can Tom Clancy this thing and that's what the Russians do. It's what they did in Crimea. It's what they did in Ukraine. It's what they've done in Syria. So although a little more openly in Syria. Um, we should start to ask. I know that this is happening now because Trump says things like they need to pay more for their own security. And he says things a little bit offhand without necessarily knowing The details and facts of these things, but gut instincts matter, too. And I don't want to be in a a position or I don't think America should be in a position. Not that me and America are inextricable, but we kind of are. Uh, I I don't want to be in a position where questions are asked and the assumptions that they don't even need to be answered, especially when it comes to where we would send our young men and women to die, possibly, on a field of battle. The question, why should we send people to defend Estonia if it were to be invaded by Russia, is one that can both be, should both be uh, asked and answered. It shouldn't just be, well, we all know the, the answer is yes. Why? Why is the answer yes? And to what extent? You know, if we're going to have better foreign policy outcomes, if we're going to make sure that we don't have any repeats of some of the mistakes we've seen, yeah, under Obama and Bush administration. All administrations make mistakes on these issues. It's just a question of degree. Then I think it's worth, it. instead of just being snarky and trying to shut these things down, I I, I do think it's fair to ask, you know, why would you send your 19 year old to defend the Baltics? I think many of you would say, yeah, and I'd go too. You know, if those of you who are active or former military. But the point here I'm making is okay, and let's get into the why because deterring Russian aggression is a question of uh, maintaining international stability, has an immediate impact on economic markets. Uh, Russia, if left unchecked, would eventually threaten directly American interests. You know, you, you, you go down the line. But I, I don't like this. Uh, oh, no, we, you know, conservatism means conservatism means that there are correct answers to questions like when do we send troops And those answers can't ever be challenged. No, conservatism should mean questions are asked and questions answered in full. All right, we'll go to a break. We'll be right back.
1: Rex Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
0: You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh,
2: So I wish I should have pulled up the audio of the exchange with Kasparov and and Carlson. Uh, It's not that the—I wasn't referring necessarily to the way that that discussion went on the show so much as some of the reaction I saw online. um, And it seems like there is a particular sensitivity right now to questioning perceived wisdom— of um perceived wisdom of national security uh national security policies that have been in place for a very long time Uh, russian aggression is a buzz or a buzz phrase right now i should say there's a lot of people that seem very uh seem very interested in uh yes very concerned with whatever russia is planning to do in the future and i would just say Keep in mind that there is it's not to say there isn't Russian aggression, but there is a very clear political agenda at play right now with playing up that Russian aggression, making it seem like this is something where everybody has to be very concerned where this is an issue, uh, a grave matter of national security importance. And so to in any way deviate from the perceived wisdom of the national security analyst cadre is to be making some sort of buffoonish uh, buffoonish error. Oh, I mean what are we supposed to do with Russia? I mean, this is going to be a, a question we handle here on the show a lot I think going forward but it's too big a country to isolate. it's obviously way too big and scary with thousands of nukes, uh, a country, to attack not that I'd ever advocate that but so these things are you can't isolate it you can't overthrow it you can't attack it so what do you do Um, we've tried the Obama administration sanctions does anybody really want to make the case that those sanctions were so biting Uh, those sanctions were so serious Uh, they changed the outcome of anything in Russia I mean I have a a Polish friend who used to tell me I always thought it's kind of funny that nothing brings the Russian people together like suffering And it seems like there's some truth to that when you look at the public opinion polls of how much people support uh, Vladimir Putin. um, It seems like there's some very real concerns out there uh, about the effectiveness of those sanctions. When you when you look at how few Russians, it seems, uh, have really had their minds changed about anything other than that the West is out to get them, that the conspiracy theories they're told are true. This is a very complicated matter, but it's going to be boiled down increasingly by the media into uh, Trump is a Russian stooge, Trump bad, uh, Russia bad, and if you start to wonder, well, are there ways to do... Remember when Ob- I remember when Obama said that he'd have more flexibility with Russia, and everyone's like, yeah, you know, after his election. Uh, uh, Not everybody, but Democrats didn't really freak out about it. Um, all right, team. Uh, send me a message about today's show if you want on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, back in a few
1: the Buck Sexton show on the blaze radio network the Buck Sexton show
2: on the Blaze Radio Network. In yeah, the light team, I think if I could sort of just come back as something other than uh, a movie star or a rock star, but you'd really want to be a rock star that hits your peak in like the eight, like late '80s, early '90s. I feel like that was the greatest time to be a, a rock star. Um, so you know, when CDs really were at their peak, and you know you your MTV and all that stuff going on, now it's a little different. Uh, music is more. Sort of disagree, the music industry is more disaggregated. Anyway, um, (laughs) forget about that for a second. I also think it'd be fun to come back as a professor of uh, classics. Um, That would be, but I'd want to be a professor of classics who consults on historical projects. One of my, one of the things that's really annoyed me uh, for a long time about movies that are based on a historical event is it's one thing when they, for dramatic effect, you know, yeah, they got to throw in probably some beautiful ladies and, you know, that didn't really... You know, I I, like, I can handle in Braveheart the French... I mean, the princess from France who, you know, that uh, didn't happen, but okay. You know what I mean? I can sort of go with that. Um, But when they can tell the truth of a story and they choose not to, and the actual story is more interesting than what they come up with, I get very annoyed. Um, So I recently you know I watched uh, I finished watching Spartacus and these are the things that I watch and as I said my brother's uh, particularly my older brother makes fun of me and says that if if there's what is it uh wine uh wine wenches swords and beards i'm in that's what he, and he's right anything that has that uh, movie TV show wine wenches dudes with swords and 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 lots of beards uh I'm probably gonna be a fan of the show um and There is, uh, for me at least, um, uh, you know, looking at this, I have to say I I thought that, you know, Spartacus, there was a little too much blood. There's a little too much of of that stuff, but uh, some of the overall storyline actually tracked with the slave revolt against the Roman Empire, and they actually used, you know, the Marcus Crassus puts it down, and uh, the names of the leaders of the revolt, you know, Gatticus and um, uh, there's a whole uh, now, of course I'm forgetting. So the uh, Gatticus and Crixus and, uh, and others are actually the names of some of the slave revolt leaders. And they, so there is some, and uh, Glaba, who was the uh, uh, initial consul who was assigned to take them down. So while the show is like the actual fighting is ridiculous and, you know, just as a, as a bit of, advice to those of you who may find themselves in an actual uh, fight with a, a Roman uh, Roman testudo formation or something y- you don't really want to do the running jumping two leg drop kick when you're when you have armor and a sword in your hand um, because people are going to stab you when you're on the ground and you're gonna die a lot of running drop kicks in this like it's the WWF I just I'm like where do they get this I that's one of the worst, Like, first of all, if you can't get out of the way of a two-legged dropkick, you got problems. Uh, It's I mean, what move is easier to see coming than somebody running and launching himself in the air and then trying to mule kick? Anyway, it's crazy. But the overall storyline kind of tracks. I also watched, and I haven't really done a a deep dive myself into it. I'm probably going to go into the Strand bookstore over the weekend and pick up something on uh, uh, the Medici family. Um, But there's Medici Masters of Florence, a Netflix series. That has the guy who plays the King of the North, the initial King of the North. I forget his name. Um, he's one of the Starks, uh, the initial King of the North, and, and he gets killed at the Red Wedding. He plays uh, Cosimo de' Medici. And it's good. It's a little slow, I think, to get going as a series, but it's pretty good. But I want to see how much of the history they stay true to, because I feel like more and more now people are realizing that, you know, if you're going to watch a historic piece, At least the overall major events should be historically accurate, right? There's no reason not to. Yeah, you can change, you you make up the dialogue and sort of internal personal squabbles, and there's going to be little action sequences here and there that didn't really happen. Fine, but overall, you know, the major battles and things like that, you'd like them to sort of track with reality. And anyway, I've always thought it'd be fun to be a professor of the classics who got to consult on a movie like Troy or. Or, or you know maybe if I was uh, specializing in Renaissance Europe to consult on this series, uh, but the Medici is very well. I will say the production value is very good. I can recommend it from that uh, from that end. Uh, I can also tell you um, that there's a lot of there's a lot of nakedness. There a lot of there's a lot of boobies. So for those of you that you know, not for this is not for the under eighteen crowd and. Don't watch this woman. Don't try to over the holiday. Don't be like, oh, you know, come here, kids. Like, let's throw on the Medici show. Like, no, 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 no. It's there's too much, too much going on there. Um, But another good history. And and I like these things because I I feel like you can always also in your head cross reference it with what you think the period would have looked like. And, you know, and and I I like to check on this stuff. Anyway, it's a it's a personal thing that, you know, I I do in my spare time because I'm obviously really exciting and and love to party. But I was thinking about all this also because I read this piece. This is sort of a, that was a long diversion. And it's a piece put out by a woman. I don't know her, so this is not a personal slam. I don't, I don't do unnecessary personal slams. I really try not to do personal slams, period. I always love it when I go to CNN and I get personally slammed when we're talking about a policy issue. And I'm like, can we not, why, why, is, why am I being like attacked all of a sudden? Like, you're not being attacked. We're just saying you're terrible. It's like, wait, I, I think saying I'm terrible is an attack. or, or I think saying I'm, I'm anti-Muslim and a racist is an attack. I think. You know, I, I don't have a Ph.D., but uh, I do know some stuff being a Ph.D. this woman, Donna Zuckerberg, writing for a publication that I'd never heard I- 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 eat I'd never heard of it before. I'm not sure it's big, but it got a little bit of attention from some of the conservative intelligentsia. The headline of it was under a bad emperor. Uh, oh, sorry. How to be a good classicist under a bad emperor. And, you know, this woman has a Ph.D. from Princeton. She teaches at Stanford University. So, I mean, we're talking very fancy places. It doesn't really get much fancier than Princeton Stanford. I mean, there's Harvard and there's Yale, but, you know, Princeton and Stanford are right up there. Um, I knew there was a problem with this, though, because not only when you sort of get into a a little bit of her piece, um, you can see that she's sort of a far left um, ideologue and has adopted a lot of this sort of progressive orthodoxy as uh, unalterable truth. She also has a book coming out. Not and I shouldn't even say it because like, I feel like I'm giving her free advertising on the show, but this will tell you a lot. Not All Dead White Men is the title of it. A Study of the Reception of Classics uh, is due to be re- released by Harvard University Press uh, coming up next fall. Not All Dead White Men, A Study of the Classics. yeah. I'm gonna say that like most of the people in ancient Greece that had a really big impact on Greek philosophy and and literature and art, I'm gonna say most of them were white men. I'm gonna put that out there. You know, this is it's likely that in ancient Greece that was true. Just saying. Um, but she has a different point of view. But that's not even really what I wanted to get into here. As you can see, I'm bouncing around with my thoughts on this one. Uh, she talks about. Well, let me read you a bit of a, a bit of this piece. A specter is haunting the internet, the specter of the alt-right. Ah, somebody who's a PhD in the classics talking about the alt-right. This should be interesting. The forces of white supremacy and toxic masculinity, fueled by a sense of entitlement dwarfed only by their inflated estimation of their own intelligence, have entered into an unholy alliance to remove feminism, political correctness, and multi- multiculturalism from America. Now... Stop there for a second. See, this is what I was trying to say to you before, and I know I'm on some of you. Some of you are a little like, huh? And I, with a lot of folks, you're on sort of dangerous ground. The moment you say, "Well, hold on a second. is this guy Spencer and these racist buffoons? Are they the alt-right, or is there something else that's a part of the alt-right? Or because the alt-right used to refer to something else, it's now been co-opted, it seems, by sort of neo-Nazi white nationalists. But that's not how it was, even by the New York Times referred to a while ago, and. Removing feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism from America—like I I I want that on my resume. So I don't want that to be something that only the alt-right is doing, or that the alt-right has some sort of a claim to beyond me. I just just put this out there, okay? But back to her piece. She writes this like these 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 hateful words, and it's so terrible that when I get rid of feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism, I I think those things should be eradicated immediately. All right. On November 8th, 2016, after enduring years of mockery, months of being told that they are the they are the arc of the moral universe, uh, would never let it win, the alt-right scored its first significant political victory, the election of Donald Trump, to the highest office of the most powerful country in the world. Uh, last week, this is this woman writing, this uh, PhD from uh, from Princeton who teaches, remember, she teaches the classics, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, yada yada. Um, so... She, she writes here, last week I gave two lectures about my research on classics and the manosphere. Now, first of all, anyone who uses the manosphere in any, with any level of seriousness is worthy of mockery, period. Right? Anyone who talks about the manosphere, we need to make fun of, full stop, just the way it is, um, and which is great. So she uses the term manosphere. And then she sort of goes on to talk about how we need to fight back against the manosphering of the classics. And she's worried that the alt-right, when it talks about Western civilization, is hijacking the real sort of study of Western civilization. And she wants to push back against this. But I wanted to also give you some of it because I'm I'm sure this is representative now because all these academics, they all parrot each other and they all want to stay within certain guidelines that they're sort of creating as they go, but it's, you know, they are in a constant evolution of the progressive echo chamber, right? It's just, they're all trying to stay within it. And yeah, it's sort of shifting over time, but they're trying to shift together, you know, think of it like all the kids chasing one soccer ball around, right? They're all clumping together. That's how in different uh, humanities, in different areas of the humanities with, with academics who, this is what they do. They teach at these universities and, they have these wonderful jobs where you have very little pressure and very little – once you get tenure, I mean, before then it's like misery and you're underpaid and it's terrible. But once you get tenure, you're in great shape um, and you're generally speaking, especially at these elite institutions, really overpaid. But she says uh, this is what to do about the manosfering of the classics that will occur under a Trump administration, right? So we're, we're pulling a bunch of threads together here. We're pulling – Trump's victory together with the manosphering of the classics and the alt-right, and, you know, this is all a big mishmash, but it's kind of fun to, to get into it. She writes, When you hear someone, be they a student, a colleague, or an amateur, say they are interested in classics because of the Greek miracle or because classics is, quote, the foundation of Western civilization and culture, challenge that viewpoint respectfully but forcefully. Engage them on their assumed definitions of, quote, foundation, quote, Western, quote, civilization, and, quote, culture. Point out that such ideas are a slippery slope to white supremacy. Seek better reasons for studying classics. Uh, so this is a Ph.D. from Princeton who teaches at Stanford writing publicly about how somebody who says they want to study the classics, which I did as a, you know, as a sort of a, a lay person over the course of my studies. I am not an expert in the classics by any means, nor would I ever pretend to be. But it was sort of a, a foundation or at least a backdrop to much of my study and much of what I've been interested in since. But if you're interested in that because the classics are, quote, the foundation of Western civilization and culture, you should be challenged on literally every word in that sentence. You should be challenged on what is culture, on what is civilization, on what is Western. This is her advice to people. Um, Because not only is that super annoying, but also to add on top of that, she believes that to think in those terms is a, quote, slippery slope to white supremacy. This is madness. This is uh, this is madness. And as Leonidas says, this is Sparta. We'll be right back. sexton go. the blaze
1: radio network.
0: to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Hey team, just returning this uh, Donna Zuckerberg piece here. Uh, she also writes these are these are her ideas for people going forward to deal with the alt right's co uh, co option of the classics because Western civilization and the Western miracle somehow is now akin to white nationalism. It's just insane. I don't even know what that. I mean, she's just gone off the deep end here. But she writes in your scholarship, focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men. Uh, and, of course, read and cite the work of scholars who write about race, gender, and class in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, there was slavery in ancient Greece. It wasn't based on race. It was just slavery, which has existed for thousands of years in the world and uh, is talked about in America only in the context of American slavery. Forget and We forget about Islamic slavery, and we forget about slavery in the ancient world. And Anyway, um, but I just think this is fascinating. It's, it's focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men, Okay, I mean, we're talking about the ancient world. You know, what, where are we talking about here? Uh, we're not talking about, we're we talking about Greece and Rome. I don't know. Not a lot of, not white men come to mind in terms of what I said leadership, military. I Maybe mean, it's just these were oppressive societies in their own ways. Anyway. Moving right along. I just think that's fascinating that this is now, that even the classics have been politicized to this extent, that you have a PhD talking about the Manosphere and, the, and how the alt-right is trying to take over the study of Western civilization. Nothing is, nothing is sacred, nothing is safe anymore, my friends. Uh, hat tip to Mike, another list of, that he sent me of the most important books to all of humanity, the Bible, the Koran, the Communist Manifesto, the Republic, Wealth of Nations, Origin of Species, Relativity, Albert Einstein, and A Brief History of Time. Again, with the exception of the first two on that list, um, and very few people have read both, I think, of those two, but how many people have actually read The Communist Manifesto, Plato's Republic, Adam Smith's Wealth, Na- Wealth of Nations, Darwin's Origin of Species, Einstein's Relativity? I know they've had a huge impact, but it's interesting to me that, I mean, let's be honest with ourselves, how many of us have actually read it? I'm not going to lie, I haven't read a bunch of them. I definitely read The Republic, The Communist Manifesto, Um, haven't read uh, Relativity and haven't read um, A Brief History of Time haven't even read Adam Smith Shields high!
0: The
1: Buck Sexton Show
0: only on the Blaze Radio Network